0: This is Dorothea McKellar, my country, the love of field and coppice, of green shaded lanes, of ordered woods and gardens is running in your veins, strong love of grey-blue distance, brown streams and soft dim skies, I know but cannot share it, my love is otherwise, I love a sunburnt country, a land of sweeping plains, of ragged mountain ranges, of droughts and flooding rains. I love her far horizons, I love her jewel sea, her beauty and her terror. The wide brown land for me, the tragic ring-barked forests, dark white beneath the moon, the sapphire misted mountains, the hot gold hush of noon, green tangle of the brushes where lithe lianas coil, and orchids deck the treetops and ferns the crimson soil. Core of my heart, my country, her pitiless blue sky, when sick at heart, around us we see the cattle die. But then the grey clouds gather, and we can bless again the drumming of an army, the steady, soaking rain. Core of my heart, my country, land of rainbow gold, for flood and fire and famine she pays us back threefold. Over the thirsty paddocks watch after many days the filmy veil of greenness that thickens as we gaze. An opal-hearted country, a wilful, lavish land. All you who have not loved her, you will not understand. The earth holds many splendors. Wherever I may die, I know to what brown country my homing thoughts will fly.
1: You have just heard an unofficial anthem in Australia, a poem taught to generations of us. But uh, while you're familiar with those lines, there's a very good chance you know little about the poet who read them. Her name was Dorothea McKellar, and she was very much a Renaissance woman, as you will learn, who managed to carve a place for herself in Australia's history at the time when not many women could. Sitting with me in the studio is Deborah Fitzgerald, who's written the first definitive biography of Dorothea. It's titled Her Sunburnt Country, The Extraordinary Literary Life of Dorothea McKellar. I welcome you to our little program, Deborah, and I was astonished to discover, belatedly, that there hasn't been a decent biography. How could this possibly happen?
2: Yes, I was astonished as well. Uh, when I was approached by her family, the estate that looks after McCullough's legacy, about writing biography, of course, I immediately jumped online to see what was already out there thinking, well, I, I must be sort of going to be standing on somebody's shoulders in terms of maybe just updating things or maybe um, fleshing things out a little. um and i I was shocked to find that there was very little written about her. There was some edited diaries by. J.O.D. Brunston from the period 1910 to 1918 and there was um, a small volume by Adrienne Howley who was her nurse for the last decade of her life. Um, And whilst that certainly um, helped me in some ways to get a sense of Dorothea in her later years... I think it was sort of as told by Dorothea because there were some discrepancies in terms of the way she told her story and and what I found in my research.
1: But you also read her diaries.
2: I know. That was so amazing to go to the Mitchell Library, to the special collections area there, and to have these volumes of diaries um, and photographs and letters and and newspaper clippings and even um, curls, locks of... The hair of the children of her and her brothers that they had kept, you know, wearing the gloves and picking up these items from the, you know, late 1800s was a a really special um, experience.
1: Introduce us to uh, young Dorothea and her family.
2: Uh, Well, her father was Charles, who was um, a doctor and later a parliamentarian a very um, successful man, and he was married to Marion. They were Scottish by descent. By the time Dorothea came along in 1885, they were living at Point Piper here in Sydney on five acres that ran along the foreshore of the harbour, which I just find extraordinary. I just can't imagine a a plot of land like that. Um, Absolutely magical childhood. She had uh, two older brothers, Keith and Eric, and a younger brother, Malcolm, who was known as Mac. And they grew up in this beautiful, beautiful setting. They had beautiful gardens with uh, Sydney bluegums and Queensland black beans and just extraordinary native plants. Which Perhaps that was
1: why she was so drawn to the bush.
2: Yeah, I, I absolutely think so. I think she had in that if you can imagine a very small child in a, in a, a five-acre plot that's um, got trees and bushes and flowering plants and natives, but you've also got the harbour and you've also got views to Bondi Beach, or you know, the dual sea, the, the duality, the beauty and the terror, I think, was all in that garden for her and... Um, They had servants, they were very wealthy, they had stables, they had a polo playing field, they had fountains, they had initially horse-drawn carriages, later on a fleet of Rolls Royces.
1: And a property in the Hunter Valley.
2: Yes. So in the late 1890s, Charles purchased the property known as Torreyburn, which still exists today, um, in the Patterson Valley, near the Hunter Valley. He wanted somewhere for his family to escape the city. It was very popular with wealthy people at that time to have um, a house outside of the city because it was quite polluted. His brother had had very bad asthma, and um, Charles's brother, and so he wanted his children to have the country air. And so I think, again, this is where she started this fascination with um, native plants and flora and fauna generally.
1: One of the defining moments of her young life came, uh, well, she's 15 years old. Tell us what happened to her favourite brother.
0: Oh,
2: it's just such a terribly sad story. Yes, Keith was her favourite brother, her eldest brother and the one she was closest to. And they had a really special bond. And in 1900, Keith uh, went off to take part in the Boer War. The empire had called and wanted Australian troops to support them in South Africa. And uh, Keith went along. And one morning, uh, he went out with his regiment and they were ambushed uh, by the Boers and he was shot in the head and killed instantly. He was 19 years old and Dorothea obviously was devastated and I don't think she ever really got over it.
1: Well, it's very poignant that eventually she would be buried with Keith and her epitaph simply reads, his sister.
2: I know, that makes me cry every time, honestly. So this was something that she wanted because, you know, she she lived to be... Um, into her old age and of all the epitaphs that could have been put on her cemetery, you know, poet extraordinaire, you know, literary historian, whatever you like, um, she requested that she be known as his sister and I think that's, that says something about the sort of humble woman that she was.
1: It says everything about her, doesn't it? Now tell me about the process of writing what would eventually be titled My Country.
2: Uh, there's a lot of myths around this, about the origins of her writing this. The one I found most often is that she was in London and homesick when she wrote the poem and she was just talking about that, oh yes, England was all very well, but she was longing for a homeland. But she debunked that in a number of articles. And she she particularly quotes a time in uh, around 1904 when she was in Sydney and she was, um, with some teenage friends after a um, tennis match and her friends were saying, oh, it's so lucky you're going home to England. It's It's so beautiful there and all those green and shady lanes and it's so perfect. And Dorothea took umbrage at this and just said, I don't know what you're talking about. For me, when I sail back through the Sydney heads after returning, I am coming home. This is my home and these are the reasons that I love it.
1: People loved the poem from the day it was published, didn't they?
2: She got um, almost instant success, which is quite extraordinary for that time. It was published first in The Spectator in London and later came to Australia and was published in in the Sydney Morning Herald and eventually in papers all across the country because it became so popular. It was originally called Core of My Heart, but... Um, Newspaper editors started pulling out My Country, I guess both as a kind of easy editing headline, but also um, I think in terms of the patriotism that was emerging after Federation, you know, which was not very old.
1: The contrast with the other famous poets of the time, I'm thinking Lawson and Banjo-Patterson, is quite astonishing. Their concern is with the drovers, the swaggies, but she was interested in the land.
2: Yes, I think that's what set this poem apart. Um, I I feel like uh, the likes of Henry Lawson and Banjo-Patterson were telling a story, were introducing the characters from the bush. Even though they were pretty much city dwellers, so those boys. But um, yeah, Dorothea was, she was preoccupied with the landscape, with the colours, with the movement. um, And I think that's why the poem was different and it endured because it started telling Australians about Australia in a way that had never been done before.
1: There was one aspect, however, which was conspicuously absent and that is there's no reference, as I recall, to First Nations people.
2: Yes, I I found that quite extraordinary as I went through her diaries that um, there was little if no mention of Indigenous peoples, which even though it wasn't perhaps something that might have been in the consciousness of the the wealthy, all the the white Australians, all the settlers of the time, I would have thought that perhaps there were Indigenous workers perhaps on the properties at Toriburn or Gunadar. and as somebody who was observing, I suppose she didn't put a lot of characters into her poetry. It was more landscape-based or magical in terms of nymphs, dryads, etc., but I think it was more the fact that there was a denialism around um, that time where um, Indigenous peoples were ignored, which is...
1: We've often discussed Donald Horn on the program because he gave us the lucky country. Now we're discussing Dorothea McKellar, who decades earlier gave us a sunburnt country with her biographer, Deborah Fitzgerald. What can you tell me about Dorothea's writing career after My Country?
0: Uh,
2: So she went on to put a collection together that included My Country, which was in uh, 1911 that was published. And the same year she published a a novel called The Little Blue Devil with her friend and collaborator, Ruth Bedford. And she went on then to write two more novels, one by herself, Outlaw's Luck, and then another one with Ruth, Two's Company. She went on to have another three collections of poetry published around 1916 and then 1923 and then 1926. And all during that time, her, her poems were appearing in publications throughout America, as, as far afield as South Africa, uh, certainly in um, England and the UK. Um, they quoted her extensively. She, she got great reviews. For her poetry, but there was always that feeling that it was a little bit patronising. You know, oh, the little woman's done a kind of nice little verse there. So, um, you know, aren't so we're, all t- we're
1: talking <laughs> about something which was simultaneously a triumph and a burden.
2: Definitely, I think she felt it was hard to get out from under my country. It was so phenomenally successful, and especially after um, World War One, where the diggers really took it to heart and would send the poem home to their loved ones and would quote the poem. And I have an anecdote in the book where one young Australian died in the trenches and they found a poem on him and he'd underlined the last verse, which was, I know to which brown country my homing thoughts will fly. And he had written same and, and underlined it so they felt very strongly that they wanted to be back in that sunburnt country when, when they were in those, those awful trenches during World War One.
1: What a poignant story that is, almost as poignant as a epitaph. Yes,
2: yeah, beautiful, beautiful. Okay.
1: Now, but she didn't consider it her best poem, did she?
2: No, she she preferred colour, which came in, in the next collection of poetry. Um, and I love colour too because I think that, is one of the things that she's outstanding at is the use of colour in her poetry. I mean, she's painting a picture. That's what she's doing with her her words. And in colour, she, she places Australia firmly within Asia, which is interesting for that time, like that's sort of unheard of because she talks about cool green jade and she talks about Asian marble and she... Talks about, yeah, things that would not have been on people's radar, I wouldn't have thought at that time.
1: I hadn't realised that she was truly a Renaissance woman. She spoke five languages, for example.
2: No, amazing.
1: And she rode horses, drove cars, swam and surfed, travelled the world.
2: Oh, yeah, she was incredible. Um, So five languages and um, early on, probably from the time she was about 19, She travelled with her father, Charles, who was travelling overseas on fact-finding missions to look at um, uh, paediatric health. So he was looking at the mental health of young people and what they would have called in that day delinquents. And he went to very many countries, including uh, the Middle East, Africa, uh, the UK and Europe, on these fact-finding missions. And Dorothea was sometimes the only woman in the room because she was translating for her father and she would be going between Italian or French or German or English, um, you know, with ease.
1: We're going to come back to the issue of mental health later, in fact, her own. But uh, her politics seemed rather confused to me, all over the place. (laughs) Yes.
2: Yes, well, she was an early feminist in a way because she did support the women's vote from early on and... um, there's a there's another anecdote in the book where she's at lunch in London with her mother and and a number of other people around the table and there was a gentleman there and they were still uh, debating the vote um, for the English at that time and this um, rather pompous man was saying well it'll just um, make women masculine if you know they're allowed to vote you know we can't have that and. Dorothea said, so are you suggesting my mother is masculine in some way? And there was Marion in her beautiful grey chiffon and her lovely feathered hat and and the man sort of went, well, that's uh, that's not what I'm saying. And Dorothea said, well, <laughs> she's had the vote for, you know, many years so I'm not quite sure what your point is. So she was very strident in those sorts of things.
1: Okay, on yeah. the one <laughs> hand she's... Uh... Pro-suffrage. On mm. the other, she's also pro-conscription. Yes. Later, she's quite close friends with uh, an old lefty in Mary Gilmore.
2: Yes, that's right. You know what? I don't think she was extremely political. I mean, I, I really don't, and I'm not, not saying that in in order to mediate in some way, but I don't think she was a really political person. I think she held strong views and she was happy to speak them.
1: Well, she was an early environmentalist, wasn't she?
2: yes. Yes, oh, she absolutely adored trees and she she wrote an editorial in 1925 which was basically asking Sydney siders to not cut down trees because they were cutting down trees for the views which is like something we still we're dealing with today i think there was something recently in the paper about these people
1: um, are still poisoning trees, trees if they block the view yes
2: and you know she said in this editorial you're missing the point a view can be magical as seen through the veil of these gorgeous trees that we have. And our native trees are just as special as all these ones that we're importing from overseas.
1: Let's now invade her sex life. She never married. Why?
2: Yes, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, She, I do think that she didn't want to be tied down in that way. She certainly had a lot of suitors. She was involved with a married man, her father's friend who was an architect from Brisbane, Dr Uh, Robin Dodds. Uh, He was married and uh, Dorothea spent some time there and it's obvious from her diaries that they had some kind of romantic entanglement but eventually because he was married that couldn't go any further. But
1: you say the real love of her life was uh, Ruth Bedford, her literary collaborator.
2: Yes, I I believe that she was romantically involved with Ruth. They were best friends for decades and they spent so much time together. They did a lot of play acting together. They play acted in the bush, they play acted on the beach, they play acted in their bedroom and... I know it does seem rather bizarre to us. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) When reading the diaries, it's really because she talks about how electrifying and thrilling and tingling it is and how she can't get the feeling off her. Uh, So they definitely, if there was a romantic scene in the play they were writing, they were definitely acting out the romantic scene in an intimate way.
1: Quite right too. Now, (laughs) why did she put down the pen?
2: I think there were a few things. I think she didn't quite make the leap from Georgian to modernism in terms of poetry. She, she didn't really understand why you had to have the, the gritty realism that the modernists were bringing to poetry because she felt like poetry was something that was an escape and that would, you know, should make you feel better in life. Um, there was her own health, which.
1: Now, this is something I said we wanted to talk about (laughs) later. She had mental health difficulties and wrote about them in the diary.
2: Yes. It it was undiagnosed, but she talked a lot about um, having nerves, uh, nervous attacks, um, heart palpitations. Uh, She would take to her bed. She, She had insomnia. She... I think, would have had a diagnosis today of anxiety and depression. Uh, She struggled, really struggled sometimes to get out of bed and go and do the things that she wanted to do. She was always getting her heart checked and various things. The family does have a history of an autoimmune disease called sarcoidosis, which definitely does introduce some of these things like heart palpitations and dizziness and breathlessness. And so, you know, there's a chance that she was suffering something like this and that was just undiagnosed because they didn't know anything about autoimmune diseases back in the day. It's hard to tell.
1: So the poem, My Country, is now over a century old. Why do you think it's had such an enduring appeal?
2: I think the language she used was very different. Uh, It came with a new insight into the way that Australia was. I think the timing had something to do with it in terms of post-Federation. I think by then a a couple of generations of Australians, whether settlers or ex-convicts who'd been freed, were wanting to get away from this idea of England as home and they wanted to embrace this new country that they were living in. And I think she gave them that. The reason it's endured is because some of those lines are so quintessential in Australians' minds. I love a sunburnt country, the wide brown land for me, uh, the beauty and the terror, the droughts and flooding rains. Um, There's no other poem that continues to be used in public discourse in the way that this poem is. It's still quoted. There's still newspaper headlines all the time that's quoting those those lines.
1: Deborah, thanks for this. It's a marvellous book. Deborah Fitzgerald, journalist and author of her sunburnt country, The Extraordinary Literary Life of Dorothea McKellar, published by Simon & Schuster. And a special thanks to the estate of Dorothea McKellar for allowing us to share with you the recording of Dorothea reading her poem.
2: Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.